0: Hello and welcome to the NFL Blitz as we review week 15 of the NFL season and of course it was the longest week we've seen in the NFL so far this season. The first game taking place on the Thursday night football and the most recent games, the two games taking place on Tuesday night ending the week. And it was quite a weird week for me because obviously there were a lot of weird, wacky, unpredictable games, but there were also a lot of really boring games. The games were either just weird and fantastic and there's lots to talk about in them, or they were completely drab and had next to no points. Even some of the games, though, that didn't have, like, any points were still quite interesting. Obviously, we'll get on to the Sunday Night Football being the prime example of that, but There is a lot to talk about this week, and again, we've got to talk about off-the-field stuff, and again, it concerns the Jacksonville Jaguars. Anyway, welcome to the show today. I hope you're doing well. I hope this podcast finds you in good health, as per usual. Remember to go to anchor.fm forward slash the NFL Blitz if you want to find out where you can play this podcast. You can also play it there, or you can keep doing what you're doing. Maybe as a Christmas gift to yourself though, try a different podcast provider or don't because that's not really a good Christmas present. Please don't download a podcast onto a relative's phone and say that's a present because it honestly isn't. It doesn't constitute a Christmas gift and it will be brought up at every subsequent Christmas meeting you have from now until the end of time. And remember to go to the Sports Blitz website for writing about the NFL and other sports, including the week 15 power rankings, which are already up on the website. And as well as that, recently I did an article about Urban Myers sacking from the Jacksonville Jaguars. And that is actually where we're going to begin tonight, because or today or this morning or whenever you're listening to this, because Urban Meyer has been sacked as the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars before their week 15 game against Houston and like with last week there's a lot more to unpack about Urban Meyer's time in the NFL and why it was a complete and total disaster. So we really need to pick it up from where we left off last week after the game against the Tennessee Titans. Urban Meyer had said he was going to sack the source behind the Tom Pelissero report that came out before the game and the Jaguars had just lost 20-0 to the Titans. It sent them to a record of 2-11 and and questions were starting to be raised after the Tom Pelissero report and... After that lost to the Titans, who were asked the Jaguars repeatedly whether Urban Meyer would still be in a job. Shad Khan initially expressed a vote of confidence in Meyer and said that they weren't going to rush into any decisions. Since then, and we'll probably have to come back to this later, he has said he'd made his mind up a long time ago that he was going to sack Meyer. But on Monday and on Sunday night, he had issued a vote of confidence in Meyer. After that, the real straw that seemed to break the Camels' back, though whether it was or not is up for debate, was former Jacksonville Jaguars kicker Josh Lambeau coming forward. Lambeau had been with the organisation for five years. He, I can't remember if he lost out on the job in pre-season or whether it was during the season because obviously I think the first time we actually mentioned Jaguars kickers this season was when Matthew Wright kicked the game-winning field goal for the Jaguars against Miami in week five. So, week six, was it? I can't remember. Either way, Lambeau was the kicker in Jacksonville for a long time. He had been released at some point this year, and he claimed that during pre-season... Urban Meyer had physically kicked him, which sort of took the accusations against Meyer up to a whole new level. Obviously, there was the lap dance thing, and that was bad, and then it was how he belittled people and undermined them, but it never got to the point where he had been accused of physically kicking someone, and here he was kicking the kicker, which I know sounds like something out of Seinfeld, where George Costanza tries to get fired from a job, but it was actually real life, and This wasn't just Lambeau piling on whilst Meyer was down. He had raised these complaints with the Jaguars organisation in pre season and they had done nothing about it. And so Lambeau decided it was now time to come forward and tell the world that Meyer had kicked him. And Urban Meyer had. Had a bad reputation with special teams anyway. He apparently didn't call the special teams players by their names. He would just call them kicker or punter. Which, by the way, just great. I know, like, people call coaches coach. But this is not that. This is very much trying to belittle them and set them apart from the rest of the team as outcasts. Because he would call Trevor Lawrence Trevor or any of the other players by their names. But he would call the special teams players kicker or punter. Or snapper, I guess. Which is just not okay on any level. And of course, kicking someone definitely isn't okay on any level either. So the Lambo accusation comes out. And I'm guessing it's one we all believe is true. Because, come on, it's Urban Meyer. And that seemed to be the thing that completely ended the relationship between Meyer and the Jaguars. Because shortly after that report was published, the Jacksonville Jaguars came out and said that they had in fact sacked Urban Meyer. What's more interesting to me is what happened in the hours leading up to Meyer's dismissal. According to Tampa Bay Times reporter Rick Sroud, Urban Meyer's lawyers threatened him in some way. They said that he couldn't publish the article and that it wouldn't be proper journalism or Something along them lines. Go and listen to his piece on the Rich Eisen show. It was a real eye-opener. But they also offered players who were willing to say that whilst Durban kicked Josh Lambeau, it wasn't as severe as Lambeau was making it out to be. And there were two problems with this. First of all, when you're debating how hard you kick someone, you've already done something wrong. Like, you're not allowed to kick someone full stop. I don't get why he was like, oh no, but it, it wasn't that hard. It's like still unacceptable. But, second of all, the players that Urban Meyer's team offered up were only apparently willing to talk off the record. And if you remember how Urban Meyer reacted to the sources in Tom Pelicero's support, who were off the record, wouldn't put their name forward. It is incredibly hypocritical for him to then go, oh, look, these people agree with me, but they're only going to tell you that they agree with me off the record, which is just so shockingly stupid or hypocritical. And that's the thing about Meyer Again, he thinks that he obeys different rules to the rest of us. He thinks that different rules apply to him and that some don't and that because he's a head coach he can get away with different things whereas in reality in the NFL he just can't so the players who were willing to speak off the record for whatever reason did not come forward they were not mentioned in the Tampa Bay Times report and honestly it doesn't matter because their opinions are completely invalid and let's just face it wrong completely wrong and it was just another weird turn in what was an incredibly ugly saga. But no matter how many off the record players Urban Meyer could present, and no matter how much he could argue, his time with the Jacksonville Jaguars was done. They fired him. Like I said, Shad Khan said that he had made up his mind a couple of weeks ago, but on Monday, He had issued a vote of confidence and he said he was going to take his time, make sure it was absolutely correct. I don't know if the Lambeau story was actually the thing that got Meyer fired, but what I do know is that this has not been a decision that has taken a long time to come. This wasn't something that was decided upon weeks ago. This was something that was very much decided upon this week and Shad Khan's sort of, I decided this weeks ago is just wrong. Shad Khan seems like a reasonable human being. In a league where there are a lot of bad people, he doesn't seem like one of them. Like, he doesn't seem like a Dan Snyder. He just doesn't seem like he's very good at running a football team. And there's a difference between bad at running a football team and bad human being. And I don't think the Jacksonville Jackie was a very well-run side, and I think this proves it perfectly. Let's face it. My should have been gone weeks ago, and for me, this completes what has to be the single worst head coaching spell anyone has had in the history of the National Football League. Because, good God, was it dreadful! It genuinely was terrible. And in the article, which you can read on the Sports Blitz website, I sort of compared it to Bobby Petrino's time in Atlanta. I would say before the start of this year, if you had asked anyone who was the worst head coach in the history of the NFL, they would have probably said, oh, it was Bobby Petrino with the Atlanta Falcons. The thing is, Petrino had just lost Mike Vick due to that and had to start, what was it, Joey Harrington, Chris Redman and Byron Leftwich at quarterback. And he didn't have the team who could carry that quarterback group. And whilst it was seen poorly at the time, he actually had the decency to quit. which honestly might have been a good idea in the end. Meyer, for me, had more talent, did less with it, had this weird feud with James Robinson. That's the one thing I'll never get about the Meyer experience in Jacksonville, is that he had this fantastic, great running back in James Robinson and just for some reason decided he didn't like him and didn't want to play him. He was the best player on offense this season for the Jaguars. He's the best offensive player that they have. And... Urban Meyer just went, I just don't want to use him. I'd prefer to use Carlos Hyde. Why? Why would you do that? God forbid what happens if Travis Etienne was there for the entire season because James Robinson probably doesn't get a snap at that point. But yeah, for me, Meyer was definitely a worse head coach for the Jaguars than Bob Petrino was for the Falcons and it's what makes him the worst head coach the NFL has ever seen. Final point to, to bring up, the interim head coach of the Jaguars, when he was doing his first press conference, one of the reporters said, I, I've i been doing the maths and I think you have a very strong chance of winning more games as the interim head coach of the Jaguars than Urban Meyer did as the actual head coach, which just shows when the reporters are starting to take the mess out of you that much, you really goofed. So yeah, for more about the absolutely wild ride that was Urban Meyer with Jacksonville Jaguars, go and read the article I wrote on the Sports Blitz called Urban Meyer Was a Disaster. Okay, let's actually go into the games then from week 15, and let's start off with the game that had the most intense debate around it. Green Bay Packers 31, Baltimore Ravens 30. Obviously going into the game, there wasn't really a lot of reasons to be optimistic for the Baltimore Ravens, not only had they got a completely tattered defence, but also Lamar Jackson had to miss the game due to the injury that he sustained last week against the Cleveland Browns, and that meant Tyler Huntley was going to be starting at quarterback for the Ravens, and he did surprisingly well. He did play really well throughout this entire game. His first half stats, by the way, 15 for 22, 137 yards, two touchdowns, pass rating of 115.1. And whilst his second half wasn't as good, he did finish 28-40, 215 yards, two touchdowns, pass rating of 99.5, with another 73 yards on the ground. So, he really is just mini Lamar Jackson. And there have been people pointing out that the Ravens do actually play, I don't want to say better with Huntley, because I don't think that's true, but they still play Play at that same level, at the very least. Tyler Huntley coming in doesn't make the Ravens look like a weaker side. Some would argue that they look like a stronger side, I wouldn't, but they most certainly don't look like a weaker side when Huntley is playing. Now, that almost certainly means literally nothing for Lamar Jackson, but it does mean something for Tyler Huntley, who will at some point, I am convinced, get a starting quarterback job in the NFL. He will be a starting quarterback because he has that talent, he has that potential. For the Ravens to get him as an undrafted QB was seriously impressive. Still, despite how well Huntley was playing, the Ravens were down 31-17 midway through the fourth quarter, but they decided to put on a show after that Huntley played brilliantly. Mark Andrews played brilliantly. Well, the whole Ravens offense played really well, to be honest. They marched down the field. Tyler Huntley had two rushes from inside the 10-yard line to get the score to 31-24 and then 31-30. And then we got onto the part of this game, which is the only part that people will actually discuss when we come back to talk about this game in the future. Because for the second time in two weeks, the Ravens decided to go for two. Down one late on in the fourth quarter, in an attempt to win the game, and just like the game against the Steelers, the attempt came up just short. Tyler Huntley trying to throw a pass to Mark Andrews, just like Lamar did against the Steelers, and it didn't work for Packers defense. Stopped it and got the win. This has once again led to a lot of debate online about whether analytics is the way forward in the NFL, and the answer, by the way, objectively is yes. But you have those who. The the issue is the debate on social media is obviously going to be dreadful, right? Because social media is dreadful. And it sort of descends into the cavemen from the 1960s who are like, always kick in that situation. And then you do have, unfortunately, I have to acknowledge it, people on the other side who are like, always go for it, failing to go for it, shows how much of a chicken you are. Neither of these positions are correct, but I am going to not do any of that, and sit down and talk about this honestly, and try to give my two cents without sounding like one of them people on Twitter, who will just spout any kind of nonsense out as a garbage hot take. Now, if you have listened to this podcast in the past, you'll probably know that I'm quite a go-for-it sort of person when it comes to the NFL, when it comes to these sort of decisions. And once again, like with the game against the Steelers, I did agree with the decision to go for it, go for a two-point conversion and try and win the game then and there. Now, like what I said in week 13 when the Ravens played the Steelers, If you go for it on a two-point play, you have about a 55% chance of converting that play. And that is more likely, therefore, than kicking the one point and then winning the toss in overtime and then marching up the field to score a touchdown to win the game. So, the odds are already in your favour when you go for a two-point play, but, of course, you're not just taking the pure statistics into account when you're deciding to go for two. There's also how your offense is doing against their defense, what their offense is like if you really want to give the ball back to them and other mitigating factors. And for me, the Ravens' offense were clicking. They were looking really strong. The Packers' defense were struggling against them. And meanwhile, on the other side of the ball, you've got that really talented Green Bay offense. And do you really want to give them another chance? Do you want to give them another bite of the cherry? No, not really. So that's why I thought it was the best decision to go for two points in this situation. Now there is a flip side to that argument, a side that says actually you should go for one despite the numerical advantage of going for two points. Baltimore were at home, they had home field advantage, they had been actually defensively standing up to the Packers in that fourth quarter, they'd been looking much stronger, so maybe the defense isn't actually the issue you would have thought it would be at the start of the game. And also, if this offense can execute a two-point play, they can also march up the field again and score in overtime, so maybe that's not as big as a problem as you would have first stated. Like I said, I thought they should go for two. I thought it was a correct decision, but I do understand those who think that the Ravens should have gone for the extra point, which they, of course, kick through Justin Tucker because he's the best kicker in the NFL, and then risk it for a biscuit in overtime. I get that argument. I understand it. I don't understand the ones who go, duh, two-point plays never work, because no. But the ones who argue for the sake of home field advantage, for the sake of how the defence have been playing, that's understandable. Now, it's, of course, understandable. Now, there's a difference between theory and practice. And whilst for me I did agree with the Ravens' decision to go for two points, I found their play call to be completely bizarre. Before the play, Jim Harbar was having a conference with Tyler Huntley. He'd called a timeout. They first, actually, if you remember, they tried to draw the Packers offside to try and make it a one yard play as opposed to a two yard play. That didn't work. They called a timeout. Harbar was speaking to Tyler Huntley in the huddle and then he called over Mark Andrews. He called over Mark Andrews to come to the sideline and discuss what was going to happen next. So at that point I was watching it and going, Oh, so they're going to throw to Mark Andrews. And that made sense. Mark Andrews had been great during the entire game. He'd been a focus point for the Ravens offence. He had got one hundred and thirty six yards receiving. He had scored two touchdowns. He had been playing absolutely phenomenally. So of course you want to put The ball in the hands of your best player but by bringing him over to the sideline it sort of to me said oh well they're definitely gonna throw to Mark Andrews now that's almost an inevitability and so when they lined up I was like well yeah they're almost certainly gonna throw to Mark Andrews and I I did start to think oh well what if that was like a, a sort of fate what if they did that to make the Packers believe they're going to throw to Mark Andrews back? actually, so they're going to run it with Huntley or run it with one of the other running backs. Maybe Latavius Murray, maybe Devonta Freeman's going to get the ball. Maybe they're going to run instead. And that would be genius to have Mark Andrews come over and make it look like they're going to pass to Mark Andrews. But actually do something else. That would be really smart. Ball is snapped and they throw to Mark Andrews incomplete. Game over. And it wasn't just the fact they decided to throw to Mark Andrews after making it so obvious that they were going to throw to Mark Andrews. It was also the fact that the play itself, when the ball was snapped, Tyler Huntley immediately ran out to his right. Which meant that one side of the end zone was completely eliminated. And since they already knew that they were going to throw to Mark Andrews... All they had to do was cover Mark Andrews. And you saw Darnell Savage, who got the slightest of fingertips to the ball to help prevent the completion. As soon as the ball was snapped, he just ran over in the direction of Mark Andrews, got his hand off the ball, and essentially won the game for the Packers. And so it wasn't just, for me, the actual decision to almost telegraph if they were going to throw to Mark Andrews. It was then the play call itself that was really stupid. He should have stood back observed and then decided whether to throw or run which by the way is how he'd got that touchdown before and what had been serving him so well in the entire game just sitting back observing the field which he can do really well Tyler Huntley and then deciding whether to throw or run and the decision to not do that on this two point conversion was really really confusing to me so you can agree with the decision to go for two and disagree with how the Ravens executed it which is the position that I'm in. I think it was correct to go for two, but I don't think it was correct to call that play. That play was really weird to me. And that was for game. And of course, your dinosaurs who think you should only, only go for one point are going to sit there and go, see, told you, this is for the proof. They're 0 for 2 when they go for 2 late on, which is not true. But it, that's, that's actually the disappointing thing. I think Mina Kimes said that if if they fail to get this two-point play, Twitter's going to be unusable for 24 hours. First of all, Twitter's unusable anyway. But, uh, yeah, I, I agree because the people who are very wrong on the matter are going to feel vindicated. i I hate it when wrong people feel vindicated, I'll be honest. Never liked it. Never liked it. But for us who, you know, understand that there is a debate to be had and that it is sometimes right to go for two and sometimes wrong to go for two and that even if it is right to go for two, you can pick the wrong play, uh, we're, we're all frustrated by those people. We're going to leave them alone. The Ravens, considering all the injuries they have, they show promise Tyler Huntley has shown that he could be a starting quarterback in the NFL one day. For the Packers, they just keep rolling on. They played really well. They, for the most part, did have their way with that half of the Baltimore defense that could play and they're not going to complain though they're 11 and 3 they're now the leading team in the NFC. Good game all round though really interesting though it is only going to be remembered for that final play. The Green Bay Packers are 11 and 3 they're the one seed in the NFC and they're first in the NFC North. The Baltimore Ravens are 8 and 6 they're second in the AFC North. For the second time this season, before we go into a game, I unfortunately have to play that clip. The 10-3 and 3 Arizona Cardinals travel to the one eleven 11 one Detroit Lions. By the way, we've not mentioned that. The Detroit Lions, one eleven 11 one Just all ones in their record. Very nice but they are going to absolutely be decimated by cardinal side who need to bounce back show their strength i am going to lock the arizona cardinals in this game arizona cardinals 12 detroit lions 30 who saw this coming not not me jesus christ you know when like your team go out and they've been playing for about 5 10 minutes and you just realize nah this is this isn't happening is it Kind of like St. Pauli when we played against Holstein-Keel. Sorry, this is an NFL podcast. I'm not meant to be talking about it. Read following St. Pauli and the Holstein-Keel piece. If you want to see what I'm like when I'm bitter. But, uh, yeah, your team come out. They play the opening 10 minutes. And you sit there and you just go, "Nap, not happening. It's over. This was the Arizona Cardinals game against the Detroit Lions. Because, good God, were they abysmal throughout this entire game. Before the game started, Field 8 on Twitter, the Cardinals are 7-0 on the road this season, looking to go 8-0 today with a game in Detroit. They would become just the ninth team ever to do so. Worth noting, six of the previous eight teams to do so reached the Super Bowl that season. So, wow, not only are the Cardinals going to go 8-0 on the road this season, this is an absolute lock of a game, but... Also, it shows just how high their chances are of making the Super Bowl. Incredible. And then, what actually happened is that the Cardinals went out and were abysmal, completely abysmal. The game started off slowly for both sides, but the Cardinals definitely looked worse, so 3-0 down at the end of the first quarter. Surrender Index on Twitter. Arizona decided to punt to Detroit from the Detroit 41 on 4th and 10, with 3.53 remaining in the first whilst losing 0-3. With a Surrender Index score of 10.1, this punt ranks at the 95th percentile of Cowardly Punts for 2021 season and the 92nd percentile of all punts since 1999. And to be honest, the Cardinals probably wouldn't have done anything if they'd even gone for it. Because, like I said, everything in this game was bad for them. But it really pointed, for me, to a side who just weren't having anything go right. The decision making was bad. The gameplay was bad. Everything was bad. And in the second quarter, the line started to pick up and eventually ran away with what was a really comfortable victory. The biggest problem for me, the thing that was most concerning, was probably the Cardinals' O-line. The Detroit D-line isn't the best in the league by any measure. And the Cardinals' O-line, which has been strong for most of this year, turned into a turnstile. And I will be honest and say that I don't know if there are major injuries to that line. I've not heard of any major injuries and they weren't brought up after the game if there were. But it was incredibly concerning. And that more than anything else pointed to why Kyler Murray had such a bad game. At the start of the year, I thought he was a strong contender for MVP. In the first few weeks, I thought he was still a contender for MVP. When I wrote that Jonathan Taylor article, whilst Murray was injured, I said, he's still probably a contender for MVP. Kyler Murray is definitely not a contender for MVP. Let's just get that out of the way right now. I'm upset about it. You're upset about it. Everyone's upset about it, but it's just a matter of fact. 23 for 41, 257 yards, one touchdown, one interception, a pass rating of 72.9. And no one else was really helping out. Chase Edmonds came back into this game. He played okay, but he didn't get the ball often enough for me. James Connor had an unusually bad game by his standards. And everyone in the past game, outside of Christian Kirk, also didn't really play that well. DeAndre Hopkins, I don't think at any point this season, has been the leading receiver on the Arizona Cardinals in, like, any game. But I think this sort of game shows how important he is because he eliminates the tough defenders for the rest of the players. It means that they get more open, obviously. And this was the first game in which the Cardinals' pass game seemed like it really missed DeAndre Hopkins. For the most part, they have been playing relatively well without him. Obviously, he came back... Last week against the Bears and played well, but he wasn't there this week and it seemed to cost him quite a bit and unlike usual, like I said, the rest of the past game just couldn't keep up and couldn't replace his production. By the half-time break, the score was stunning enough. It was 17-0 to the Lions and it only got worse from there, to be honest, for the Cardinals. I guess they lost the second half by fewer points, lost second half 13-12. Woo! But it didn't really get much better for Arizona at any point. The Lions' 17-0 lead at halftime, and if I research on Twitter, that is the largest Lions' lead at any point in the game this season, and the Cardinals' largest halftime deficit on the road since 2018, when Kyle Murray was still playing his Heisman-winning season at Oklahoma. So that bad, and. Uh, yeah, like I said it didn't really get better for the Cardinals in the second half, including when Kyler Murray had his interception, which was a fantastic pick by a man whose name I am going to pronounce horribly wrong, so brace yourselves. Amani Obuware. I think I might be right actually. Obuari. Amani Obuware got the interception for the Detroit Lions. Really impressive grab by him. The pass from Murray, which was intended for AJ Green, wasn't really off in any way. It wasn't a bad throw, to be honest, but Obrouarie just sort of came in out of nowhere and grabbed it and was able to run it back nearly for a pick six. So, absolutely exceptional job from him. And to be honest, there are so many players on the Detroit Lions who are worth crediting in this game. Jared Goff had his best game of the season, 21 for 26, 216 yards, three touchdowns, a pass rating of 139.7. And I think, if I remember correctly, going into this game, the Cardinals had the fourth ranked defence in the league. The Lions are still struggling with injury problems. There was no DeAndre Swift in this game, but once again, like the game against the Broncos, Craig Reynolds really stepped up. 112 yards off 26 carries. He played exceptionally well. And for me, Amon Rasen Brown, when it comes to the wide receiver game, continues to show that he is a really exciting young prospect who the Lions can get lots of production out of in the future and now. And like what we said with Obawarie, it wasn't just that the Cardinals were struggling offensively, it was also that the Detroit defence really stepped up too. They had a great game. Holding the Cardinals to trial points is seriously impressive. And I've sort of gone back and forth on Dan Campbell this season as a head coach and gone from he's clearly a good leader to his play calling is too conservative to he seems to have a problem with handling blame and... Now I've gone back full circle because if you watched the video of him talking to the team after the win, you can tell he's clearly a good motivator and that his players would be willing to walk through walls for him. I think any head coach who starts off as poorly as the Lions did is going to have a struggle maintaining motivation and there's going to be reports come out about why the team is going in the wrong direction and I think Campbell's play calling did deserve criticism but for the most part for me Dan Campbell is actually doing really well as the head coach of the Detroit Lions he's clearly a good motivator he has his problems but he's fostered a good atmosphere in that Detroit locker room and if you remember back to when they had Matt Patricia as their head coach they did not have a good atmosphere in that locker room back then So he's come in, he's turned the mood of the team around and whilst there was that tough start and whilst his play calling could be criticised at points, they are moving in the right direction under Dan Campbell. I am now back in Camp Campbell, which is what I'm calling it. I'm going to call it Camp Campbell because that just sounds funny. The one problem we do have to point out for the Detroit Lions from this game is that beating the Cardinals meant they lost the first overall pick in the draft, provisionally at least for the time being, and yeah, it's not great. But to be honest, if you looked at the faces of the fans at Ford Field and you looked at the players in the locker room and Dan Campbell in the locker room afterwards, I would suggest that none of them care. So fair enough. Fibedo is going to have to go to another team, probably. I mean, let's face it. I don't see the Jaguars winning another game anytime soon. So the Lions might be locked out of that number one spot. The Arizona Cardinals are 10-4. and four. They're the fourth seed in the NFC and their first in the NFC West. The Detroit Lions are 2-11-1. They're fourth in the NFC North. Kansas City Chiefs 34. Los Angeles Chargers 28 after overtime. First of all, congratulations to anyone who, like me, had Travis Kelsey and their fantasy team this weekend for winning, I assume. That you did. The Chiefs are back. The Chiefs are most certainly back. I feel like that's like the third week, fourth week in a row. I probably said that, but if you had told me in week seven after they'd lost to the Titans to go three and four that they would be at some point ten and four leading the AFC, looking like the best side in the AFC, I would have thought you were insane. Despite the fact that the Chiefs have always been the Chiefs and the Chiefs have been very good now for the last few years. I still wouldn't have expected this sort of turnaround this season. And the Chiefs, over the last few weeks, have been relying on the players you would have sort of expected them to. And once again, really good game for Patrick Mahomes. 31-47, 410 yards, three touchdowns, one interception, which we'll get back on to. A pass rating of 105.8. Travis Kelsey, as I mentioned, 191 yards receiving. And two touchdowns, including the one that won them the game in overtime. I cannot remember any performance like that from a tight end. He was absolutely phenomenal. He was fantastic. It wasn't just Travis Couch as well. Tyreek Hill played really well, 148 yards receiving two. And for the most part, the Chiefs defense also played really well. The only moments I can remember that were bad for the Chiefs was... From the homes, that weird fumble that he gave up, which I think might have been in the second quarter, that was just really strange. And I thought it was going to be given an incomplete pass, but no, no, it was just a really, really weird fumble. I can't remember if anyone even got a hand on it. No, somebody definitely got a hand on him, but it was just really strange. To look that up, and as well as that, the incompletion on fourth and one. The wide receiver who was throwing to, I think it might have been Byron Pringle, was wide open, so wide open. And Mahomes just sort of threw it into the dirt. It was, he was attempting to throw it to him, but it was just like so off and bad. No wide receiver is going to catch that ball, I can guarantee you right now. But when you've got a pass rating of 105.8, not really worth moaning about the minutiae, and by the way, you'll notice I didn't mention the interception there. We'll get back onto it in a bit. I'm saying that like it's the real big moment of this game. It's not, it's just I've placed it later down in my notes. So, the Chiefs pretty much didn't put a foot wrong in the entire game. They went into Los Angeles against a tough Chargers side we know can beat anyone on their day, and who beat the Chiefs early on in the season in Week 2. And they pretty much played perfectly, got the win in overtime. For the Chargers, obviously the main part of this game was their decision to constantly go for it on 4th down. They went for it on 4th down 5 different times, 2 of which were on the goal line. They only succeeded in getting 2 of those 4th down conversions. But that's the aggressive approach that Brandon Staley takes. It's going to work some weeks. It's not going to work other weeks. Overall, I think the Chargers are perfectly fine doing what they're doing, even though it didn't work out in this situation. They still played that Chiefs side really well. They still put up a good performance. And I think watching the highlights, because I didn't watch the whole game, obviously because it was on Thursday Night Football, Justin Herbert, for me, played reasonably well. And there's not really much to complain about, despite his relatively lacklustre passer rating. The interception as well wasn't on him. One of the Chiefs defenders got a hand on in it, bounced up into the air for another one to catch. I believe it was Anthony Hitchens who got the interception for the Chiefs. But for the most part, for me, there's not much to complain about when it comes to the Los Angeles Chargers. Their defence also played relatively well. It's at this point, I do have to talk about Chena and Wosu, who got the interception for the Chargers off Mahomes. Go and look that one up as well, because that was absolutely fantastic. One of the best defensive plays of the week. And... It's one of them games I'm going to love watching Mahomes against Herbert over the next few years because it is going to be a fantastic rivalry, a fantastic duel. And this was just a really entertaining game. The Chiefs, they keep marching on. They are clearly the class of the AFC at the moment. And once again, the conference runs through Kansas. And like I said, when they were 3-4, wouldn't have expected that in any way, shape or form. But here we are. The Chiefs have sorted out their problems on defence. They're looking stronger on offence. They are looking like the side we expected them to be at the start of the year. The Kansas City Chiefs are 10-4. and 4. They're the one seed in the AFC and first in the AFC West. The Los Angeles Chargers are 8-6. and six. They're the sixth seed in the AFC and they're second in the AFC West. That division, by the way, that looked so close a couple of weeks ago, I'm pretty sure now, bar the collapse, the Chiefs are going to win it comfortably. Still, rooting for the Chargers to make the playoffs. New England Patriots 17, Indianapolis Colts 27. And sometimes when you're coming up against Jonathan Taylor, there's just nothing you can do about it. Because once again, for me, my personal favourite for MVP just completely ran over a side. 170 yards off 29 carries, including that 67-yard touchdown at the end of the game that got the Colts that win in the end because they were, what, three points up at that point? Um, That put them 10 points up. That sealed the game for the Colts. And thank God Jonathan Taylor was doing something because Carson Wentz was doing nothing. Five completions all game. And this was in a dome, so it can't exactly be blamed on the wind like when Matt Jones threw three times. This very much was just Carson Wentz playing bad and Frank Wright going, Nah, I'm not going to use him. 5 for 12, 57 yards, 1 touchdown, 1 interception, a pass, a fatigue of 49.7. Did rush for 17 yards. So there's that. It was off 8 carries though, so it wasn't very good. But yeah, this was the Jonathan Taylor show for the Indianapolis Colts. He played absolutely fantastically, without fault. And like I said, for me, he should be the favourite for MVP. I think he's been absolutely phenomenal throughout the year. And bear in mind, this was against the number one defence in the league in the New England Patriots. And he still just ran over them like they weren't there. I do really hope he wins it. It would be absolutely fantastic. For the Patriots... Bill Belichick actually apologised in his press conference on, I believe, Monday because he had been angry with the journalists during the Saturday night press conference. Obviously, this was a game on Saturday night. And he said, I handled myself incredibly in that press conference. I shouldn't have acted like that with you guys. That That was my fault. So when Bill Belichick is losing his temper like that, then you know, as a side, you've done well, or you know, as a Jonathan Taylor, that you've done well. Because let's face it, there was nothing else about that game that was making him that angry. And creditable Belichick though for you know admitting it and being a bigger man and not being Urban Meyer. It's a low bar to clear, but at least he owned up to it. That's that's very good of him. For the most part, you know, to be honest, I I'm not worried about the Patriots' result of this game. Mark Jones is going to have points in this rookie season where he's going to struggle. He had a 74.2 passer rating, and that was sort of a big problem. The Patriots' offense just couldn't really get going like Jonathan Taylor could, and that was the difference between success and failure for them. But yeah, credit to Jonathan Taylor, who had an absolutely fantastic game, and once again for me, proved why he is a serious candidate for MVP. The Indianapolis Colts are 8-6, they're the 5th seed in the AFC and their 2nd in the AFC South. The New England Patriots are 9-5, they're the 2nd seed in the AFC and 1st in the AFC East. Tennessee Titans 13, Pittsburgh Steelers 19 and once again we're having to tell players in the NFL, do not stand on the opposition's logo. It doesn't work. It will just anger them. Stop doing it. It's of no benefit to you. It just gives bulletin board material to the other side. And to be honest, whilst I wouldn't say that the Pittsburgh Steelers only won because of the Titans standing on the logo before the game, it definitely had a massive impact. And I don't get How so many people in the NFL need to be told this? Obviously, it was Juju last year dancing on the logo and angering every opponent, just at the same time the Steelers started to lose games. Weird coincidence, isn't it? And then this year, the Raiders stand on the logo at the head stadium against the Chiefs and get promptly demolished. And now the Titans are standing on the logo at the Steelers' ground, Heinz Field, and they get destroyed, well, mostly in the fourth quarter. start of the game was actually quite good for them. But I don't get how players in the league don't understand, don't give the opponents bulletin board material, especially when they're a good side. Jesus, if you did this against the Jags, I mean, probably wouldn't matter, but doing it against the Steelers is just stupid. Jesus Christ. How are we still trying to teach players this lesson anyway? There was actual stuff that happened in this game. The Titans played relatively well in the first half. They raced out to a 13-3 lead and then stopped. Just completely stopped. The Steelers once again are showing that they only really lived for the fourth quarter. And that was mostly the case in this game. To be honest, it was it was actually the second half this time. Last few weeks, they've only been playing well in the fourth quarter. This time, they decided to expand it out to the second half. If they expanded it to the whole game, hey, they could win games comfortably or something. But credit to the Steelers. They did play well in this game against a good Titan side who stood on the logo. But uh, I'll try and focus on what actually happened. For me, the real credit in this game has to obviously go to the Steelers defense, who once again completely played fantastically. There were many sacks and fumble recoveries and interceptions and everyone on that defense played their part. Obviously The main credit needs to go to Joe Schobert, who got an interception. TJ Watt, who completely pestered Ryan Tannehill throughout the game, got three quarterback hits, one fumble recovery as well. He played absolutely fantastically, one and a half sacks as well. With that, by the way, with those sacks, TJ Watt has now... Got 17 sacks on the season. NFL research on Twitter that sets a new Steelers single season record and brings Watt to 66.5 career sacks, passing Hall of Famer Derek Thomas for the third most in a player's first five seasons. TJ Watt has been absolutely phenomenal for the Steelers. He's overtaken James Harrison's single season record as well for most sacks as a Steeler, as mentioned in the tweet, and... Harrison sent him a congratulations as well, during the game, that was really nice, and he for me absolutely is the prime candidate for defensive player of the year. I know there's quite a few standout contenders this year, but for me, none of them are even close to TJ. I would have said Miles Garrett before this week, but he had a bad game against the Raiders, and that's not going to necessarily determine whether he does or doesn't win defensive player of the year, but I think it just helps to separate him and TJ at the top. I don't really think there's any other names that stand out to me as a solid Defensive Player of the Year candidates, though I'm sure sure the press will find someone, anyone, to not pick a stealer. Jesus Christ. But apart from him as well, by the way, credit also needs to go to Mick Fitzpatrick. He recovered one of them fumbles. He just seems like he knows where the ball is going to go Ages before it's even gone there, he's just got that sixth sense in him that just he just knows immediately it's like it's going to be there in about 10 seconds. So if I get there before then, then I'll be able to recover the ball. <laughs> it's uh, it's re- he really is such a, a phenomenal talent. And of course, a lot of credit has to go to Joe Hayden as well, who stopped the Titans on that final fourth down but gave Steelers a win. The refs gave them the most extraordinarily. <laughs> generous spot it was like a a yard and a half back from the first down mark and I was like yeah first down "Mm, no not not really and even when even when they placed the ball in the wrong spot they're like they they still couldn't quite give them first down I don't think that's what they're doing by the way just full disclosure it's cock up over conspiracy right don't think I'm suggesting anything else by the way Taco Charlton got the tip on the Showbert interception I was like I did not see that coming at any point this year. Taco Charlton and Joe Schobert combining for an interception. But I'm I'm a fan. I'm, I'm loving it. So yeah, the Steelers' defense really stood up. And obviously we need to mention the main stat, which was that there was a 10-snap window for the Titans where they turned the ball over three times. Three times in 10 snaps. I've not seen that ever in the NFL Two of them were fumble recoveries. The other one was a Ryan Tannehill interception. The Titans in the end turned it over four times. They lost a turnover battle 4-0. And that's why they lost the game in the end. And didn't help that they stood on the logo. Don't do it. But this game is obviously more about the Pittsburgh Steelers. Ben Roethlisberger in this game overtook Philip Rivers for. 5th most passing yards all time. Congratulations to Big Ben on that achievement. I don't think there's any doubt that Ben Roethlisberger is going to the Hall of Fame at this point. And Also, by the way, using those legs, getting the one-yard touchdown midway through the third quarter. That was absolutely fantastic. The Steelers should have capitalised more on what their defence was doing because they didn't get a single touchdown in the fourth quarter despite getting incredibly generous field position from all three of those turnovers that came in the fourth quarter every time Chris Boswell had to kick a field goal but it was enough and to be honest I don't want to complain because the Steelers are still somehow not dead. Do you know that meme from the Sonic the Hedgehog movie of how are you not dead I have no idea? It's that. It's essentially that, that's what it feels like watching the Pittsburgh Steelers so far this season. But credit to that defence, credit to Ben Roethlisberger. and the Steelers somehow keep marching on. So I mean I'm not optimistic for how the season's gonna pan out, especially with the teams the Steelers still have to play, but you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna enjoy this whilst I can. The Tennessee Titans are 9-5, they're the third seed in the AFC and first in the AFC South. The Pittsburgh Steelers are 7-6-1, they're third in the AFC North. Okay, it's now time to speed up as we go through the rest of the games in the NFL. Cincinnati Bengals 15, Denver Broncos 10. This wasn't very interesting, to be honest. Apart from that long touchdown to, I believe, Tyler Boyd from Joe Burrow, not much really happened. A 56-yard pass, by the way, from Burrow to Boyd. Joe Burrow, on the day, had a pass rating of 103.8, but it wasn't an overly inspiring performance. He only threw one hundred and fifty-seven yards. And aside from that touchdown to... Tyler Boyd I can't really remember anything he did so it wasn't as good as I would say that number makes it look but still he got the win he got the stats I don't think he's really going to be complaining and he shouldn't he also rushed when necessary 25 yards off five carries so there's about two. but yeah he he was fine he was absolutely fine for how good Joe Burrow has been over the year. This is not the game to get hyped up about when it comes to how good he is as a quarterback. I like to celebrate when I'm right from time to time because, you know, it shows I I do somewhat know things about the NFL. I knew this was going to be a defensive slugfest. The Bengals came in as the fourth best defense when it comes to defending the run, which is what the Broncos offense overly rely on. And the Broncos defense, obviously one of the better ones in the league, the Bengals. We're going to relatively struggle against that. For the Broncos, oh god, this game obviously is going to be remembered for the bad injury to Teddy Bridgewater. As of point of recording, we don't know how severe the injury is, but by the time that this podcast has been published, you'll probably know he had the face mask taken off, which is never a good sign. That's always very bad and with the injury history of Bridgewater as well you do really fear for what the injury could be. Drew Locke came in and actually you know I mentioned Joe Burrow's passer rating was 103.8. Drew Locke came in and put forward the argument for why passivating rating shouldn't be taken as the be-all and end-all because he had a passivating rating of 102.1 and was bad. Didn't really work out for him. Especially that final drive we have to talk about was really, really weird. Because it felt like... First First of all, there was one point actually in the second quarter. We need to talk about the final drive of the second quarter first. Because there was one point where Vic Fangio called a timeout after a player had gone out of bounds. Which, no. And then it seemed like they were just running down the clock for a long field goal. Instead of trying to get into, field goal, into further field goal range using more timeouts. Brandon McManus eventually missed the field goal and, to make it worse, gave the Bengals enough time to march downfield and kick a field goal of their own, which is what Evan McPherson did. And then, in the final quarter of the game, the play calling by the Broncos and Drew Locke's throwing just wasn't there. It ended up going to like 4th and twenty-five, and Drew Locke threw a pass out of bounds. It almost looked like when the quarterback is just throwing the ball away to you know not be sacked except it was fourth down I don't think that's what Drew Locke was doing I just think the throw was dreadful but it wasn't an inspiring game offensively from the Broncos and this is still the one big problem when it comes to the Broncos offense Vic Fonjo is just not a good play caller and he calls timeouts at weird times the two-minute drills from the Broncos are just not good. And I don't know how they get better. Obviously, it'll get better if, you know, they get Aaron Rodgers in the offseason. And he comes in and says, ah, I think you'll find I'm the one who's going to be calling for timeouts and plays. Because he actually knows how to run an offense. Even if Aaron Rodgers doesn't know about other things. You know? Just put it out there. And, yeah, that's that's my big concern about the Broncos going forward for the Bengals. Always going to be a tough game going to mile high against Denver and their fans, and they did enough. Joe Burrow, passivating aside, played okay, and they stopped whatever that Denver offense was trying to do. Javante Williams played really well, 72 yards on the ground. Malvin Gordon, 53 yards on the ground, so not as good. The one play that is worth checking out from this game is the double fumble that happened (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because that was quite funny. Go and look that up. It was Denver fumbled it to Cincinnati and then Cincinnati fumbled it back to Denver. I don't know if they if they ruled that the Bengal who recovered the fumble uh, was down by contact afterwards before he fumbled. But it is just a fun play to watch anyway, so go and watch it. Apart from that, this game... I don't know how I've talked about it for so long because it wasn't worth talking about at all. The Cincinnati Bengals are 8 and 6. They're 4th in the AFC and 1st in the AFC North. The Denver Broncos are 7 and 7. They're 4th in the AFC West. Las Vegas Raiders 16. Cleveland Browns 14. Man, this was not a game that was worth watching because it was just dull. Obviously... The Cleveland Browns were missing several players on defense. They were also missing Baker Mayfield, their quarterback. Nick Mullins having to start because Case Keenan was also out under the Covid protocol. Nick Mullins, you know, played okay. He actually statistically did better. Van Derrick Carr, 20 for 30, 147 yards, one touchdown, pass rate of 89.2. But obviously, for the most part, this Cleveland offense was carried on the back of Nick Chubb. He had a really bad first half, and that partially explains, or nearly fully explains, why the Browns didn't get a single point in the first half. But he woke up in the second, 23, carries, 91 yards, one touchdown. You feel like if he could have got going in the first half, the Browns would have won this game, but wasn't meant to be in the end. The Raiders, despite coming up against the wounded Bram side, did not play that well. Derek Carr had a pass rating of 80.6. Josh Jacobs had 52 yards on the ground. Their best wide receiver, statistically, was Zay Jones with 67 yards receiving. But to be honest, Zay Jones just had some bad moments. Not as bad as Hunter Enthro, who fumbled twice. Didn't lose any of them, but he fumbled twice, which... Wow. Derek Carr fumbled twice as well, actually, and he did lose one of them fumbles. But, yeah, Zay Jones, it was weird for me because obviously he helped get the Raiders into field goal position on that final drive that won them the game. But for the most part, just wasn't that good. And to be honest, nothing about this game was that good. And I wish I had that time back. To be honest, I was only half watching it, thank the Lord. I was playing the Tour de France video game at the same time, and the Tour de France video game was way, 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 way more entertaining, obviously. But, to be honest, I could have been doing anything. I could have been doing household chores and it would have been more interesting than this game. Still, after a really bad run of games for the Raiders, obviously, previously 5-2, and two, and then they lost five of their last six games. This halts that bad run for them. They can maybe be a bit more optimistic about how the season's going to end. For the Browns, when you're that injured, I mean, can you really complain about losing by two points to a side who are at 500? Not really. I did see that video on Twitter of that Browns fan crying and going, this might be the first time I've ever cried as a Browns fan. Why? Isn't this a side who went 0-16 like four years ago? And now you're crying because your heavily wounded side lost to a side at 500. And have a really good quarterback. Well, most weeks he's a really good quarterback. Against the Browns, not so much. But honestly, it's if I put my Cleveland hat on, which I don't own because why would I own that? Uh, I, I find it hard to care. Obviously, the problem is that it knocks them further away from the playoff place. But... I don't think they were in the playoffs at the start of the week, but it obviously knocks them further away. Still, it's hard to care because they were that wounded. It's not really a surprise. The Las Vegas Raiders are seven and seven, their third in the AFC West. The Cleveland Browns are seven and seven, are fourth in the AFC North. New Orleans Saints, nine Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Nil. Yeah, I I saw this coming. Everyone saw this coming. Since Tom Brady went to Tampa Bay, they are 0-4 against the Saints in the regular season. The Saints, even without Sean Payton in this game, just seem to have the Buccaneers' number. And they completely shut them out. Which I believe is the first time that's happened. Well, yeah, it is the first time that's happened since Tom Brady joined the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. First time, I think, since Bruce Arians was there as well that the books have been shut out. But... It didn't help, obviously, that the Buccaneers' offense kept falling like flies. Leonard Fournette left the game early. Chris Godwin left the game early. Mike Evans left the game early. Pretty much everyone, bar Tom Brady, left the game early. And Tom Brady had a really bad game. 26-48, 214 yards, 1 interception, which, by the way, was in field goal range. A pass rating of 57.1. He played really bad at... Yes, you can look at the injuries, but that wasn't the difference between them winning the game and being shut out of the game. Brady's performance also has to come under some scrutiny. Obviously, not too much scrutiny. This is a man who's won seven Super Bowls. There's something else that needs to come under more scrutiny from Tom Brady, which we'll get on to later. Taysom Hill did actually outplay him in the end. 13 for 27, 154 yards, pass rating of 66. But let's face it. The Saints put up nine points on offense. That's not where the main story is. Marquez Calloway did get 112 yards receiving, but that's not the main story. The main story, obviously, that fantastic Saints defense shutting out the Buccaneers. They played really well, credit to them at least, because someone needs to be praised from this game. The person who doesn't need to be praised is Tom Brady because once again, and we talked about this sometimes last year, especially the game against the Bears, He's such a sore loser. He can't lose well. And I get that nobody likes losing. And that to be a great competitor in the NFL, you have to reject losing and do anything you can to prevent losing. But you are meant to be a sportsman when you do lose. And Tom Brady, once again, he was having a go at all of the Saints sideline for no reason. He He destroyed one of the Microsoft tablets which is probably quite easy. I don't know their build quality. I'd never buy one. But he destroyed one of them. He was having a go with everyone. And he just, I'm assuming that he didn't shake Taysom Hill's hand because he's a sore loser. And that, for me, like we said last year, it's just going to be one of the things you remember Tom Brady by. He's, look, great player, Super Bowls, TB12 method, sore loser. They're the things you're going to remember him for. So loser is going to be one of them, because he can't handle defeats properly. He can't handle defeats in the way we expect a veteran NFL player to handle defeats. That's the one real black mark against him. That and he has this weird obsession with trying to resurrect the careers of bad people, but apart from that, that's one bad person, but... Still, it's it's just really unprofessional for him to act like that after a loss. Just be a bigger man. Stand up and just be a sportsman when you lose. That's, come on, we expect that from everyone. We expect it from you too, Tom. Still, well done to the Saints, who with that go 7-7. Seven and seven. They're still in the playoff picture themselves. Despite all of the problems they've been through, despite not having Sean Payton for this game... Who knows? With the way this NFL season's been going, anything could happen. The Saints could win the Super Bowl with Trevor Simeon starting at quarterback. At this rate, I genuinely have no idea. The New Orleans Saints are seven and seven. They're second in the NFC South. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers are ten and four. They're the third seed in the NFC and they're first in the NFC South. Seattle Seahawks ten, Los Angeles Rams twenty. Let's get this game out of the way fast because I didn't watch it. The Rams are back on form. They played really well. Matthew Stafford, a 106.1 pass rating. Sony Michel, 92 yards on the ground. Cooper Cup, 136 yards through the air. The main players for the Rams came forward. They stood up. And to be honest, beating the Seahawks isn't as impressive anymore, but the defence did stand up as well. Russell Wilson had a pass rating of 55.3. No one really got going on the Seahawks offence, and I would argue that the Rams defence really were the reason. Jalen Ramsey had a great game. Von Miller got his first sack as a Ram two. So Yeah, the Rams played well. They deserved to win. There was that pass interference call late on in the game that sealed the win for the Rams on fourth down with about one minute first remaining or something, and it was there was a no there was a no call. It should have been a pass interference against the Rams. It wasn't given. I don't get it. It was a really, really bad call. It was up there with the Roby Coleman call. In the sense of, like, how confusing it was. So, go and look that up if you can. Because the officials have to be doing better. They have to be spotting pass interference like that. I was stunned they didn't give it. But that was... That was it, really, for a game I didn't watch. I... Didn't really want to go back and watch this game because it just seemed a bit dull. The Seattle Seahawks are 5-9, they're 4th in the NFC West. The Los Angeles Rams are 10-4, and four, they're the 5th seed in the NFC and they're 2nd in the NFC West. Dallas Cowboys 21, New York Giants 6. You might have noticed that the New York Giants haven't been great over the last few years and yet their fans stick by the team, despite all the bad hires, despite all the bad decisions, despite all the losing. The Giants fans, they stick by their team. They are loyal to Big Blue, and the Giants recognize that and decided to reward their fans with a fan appreciation day, and how are they going to show appreciation to the fans who have been through so much since that last Super Bowl win? By offering them one medium soda. I don't know if you've watched National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I'd recommend it. It's a great movie. Great around Christmas time, obviously. Very funny. There's a moment towards the end of the movie where Clark Griswold gets his bonus and he's been waiting for this bonus all, all winter long because he's bought a pool for the family And he needs his Christmas bonus to cover that. And instead of getting the cheque he expected to get, he was involved in the Jelly of the Month Club. That's the gift that keeps on giving all year round, says Cousin Eddie. But Clark is annoyed because the Christmas bonus is meant to be a way in which the company say a big thank you for the hard work you've been doing over the last year. And instead of showing that appreciation properly, they enrolled him in a Jelly of the Month Club. That's what this was. This was being enrolled in the Jelly of the Month Club for Giants fans. Because after everything that they've gone through and everything they've witnessed and everything they've had to watch, the, the idea that one medium cup of Pepsi is going to solve that... ...is really stupid. And by the way, it gets worse. Pat Leonard on Twitter, someone just told me that the free Pepsi at MetLife Day... ...is not one drink per ticket. It's only for the person whose name is on the account. To the Maras, I shouldn't have to tell you... ...why that's stupid. And why that's not going to help the fans feel appreciated... It is no surprise that pretty much all of my Reddit timeline over the last week has been filled with Pepsi memes. With one medium soda memes. Because Jesus Christ was that so incredibly stupid. If you want to show appreciation to the fans, run the team properly. You thought about that? Maybe just a little bit. Just maybe run the team just a bit better. Maybe that better than a medium soda, a competent team, maybe, and I'm a man who loves soda, but I'd rather watch good football than have one free medium soda. It genuinely stuns me. The whole saga stuns me. I don't get how the Marva family have fallen so low, and, you know, it's not like on the level of Snyder's and of people of that ilk, but you know, they're just like Shad Khan. They seem lovely, but they don't know how to run a football team. As for the game itself, look, what is there honestly to say? The Cowboys played relatively well, but not great. Mike Lennon was dreadful, 24.8 pass rating. He was replaced midway through the game by Jake Fromm, who actually played better, which doesn't say a lot of great. Devontae Booker played relatively well for the Giants, but they only scored six points, so... Who cares, to be honest? It was a depressing game all round for the New York Giants. NFL on CBS, on Twitter, since firing offensive coordinator Jason Gavitt following their week 11 loss to the Buccaneers, only the Jaguars have scored fewer points per game than the Giants at 12.3. It's not getting better anytime soon, and I worry that, that whilst Gettleman will go and whilst Judge will eventually go, the problems with the Giants are not with them. It, they're clearly with ownership, but hey, at least you have one medium soda. <sighs> Jesus Christ. The Dallas Cowboys are 10 and 4. They're second in the NFC and first in the NFC East. The New York Giants are 4 and 10. They're fourth in the NFC East. Houston Texans 30. Jacksonville Jaguars 16. And it was the third round pick in Davis Mills who. Overcame the first overall pick in Trevor Lawrence. Mills had a better game than Lawrence as well 19 for 30, 209 yards, two touchdowns, one interception, a pass rating of 92.2. Really aided by a great performance from Brandon Cooks, 102 yards through the air. Trevor Lawrence, meanwhile, 22 for 38, 210 yards, a pass rating of 73.4. The Jaguars may have been expecting to bounce back after sacking Urban Meyer, but it didn't happen immediately. Does turn out, though, James Robinson's good. Who could have guessed that? It's almost like he's a really good running back or something. 75 yards on the ground from 18 carries. He had a sort of minor revenge game, I guess. And, of course, the best moment of the game was on Robinson's touchdown when a fan got on to the field, as the Jaguars were taking the snap, he was wide open. Wide open in the corner of the end zone. All Trevor Lawrence had to do was throw it to him. he catch it. And it wouldn't have counted to for a touchdown because he's not an actual player. And also, I'm surprised it didn't get flagged for 12 men on the field. Because, you know, he's totally a player, right? So, it should have been flagged for 12 men on the field. But, apart from that, the Texans were the better side. They did deserve to win and to be honest whilst the pick was ridiculed at the time and rightfully so because the Texans are just awful when it comes to running a team Davis Mills does look like he could pan out as an NFL quarterback which is a weird thing to say but he's actually doing quite well credit to him The Houston Texans are 3-11, they're third in the AFC South. The Jacksonville Jaguars are 2-12, they're fourth in the AFC South. New York Jets 24, Married Dolphins 31. I know the Jets lost this game, but to be honest, I just really enjoyed them because it felt like, for me, the mentality of the Jets was just, screw it, let's just go out there and have fun. Our season's already over. Why should we slog through the rest of this campaign when we can just have fun? And that's exactly what they did, especially on that lateral play to Braxton Berrios. That was one of the best plays of the weekend, if not the best play of the weekend. But even excluding that, the Jets just played with a good energy and good vibes. And I just really enjoyed it. Zach Wilson still had a bad game, 80 pass rating overall. But, oh, there was that one play where we made like five people miss. That was very fun. But um, apart from that, Not really much went the way of the New York Jets. They were entertaining, though, at least. For the Miami Dolphins, this was another concerning game for Tua. Considering that the Jets' defense is, I I think, middling. I think they're middle of the pack, right? Tua had a bad game. 16 for 27, 196 yards, two touchdowns, two interceptions, a pass rating of 75.5. One of them interceptions as well was just dreadful. It was one of the worst picks I've seen him throw. This year, I believe it was his first interception in the first quarter. Ashton Davis that was the one that was just dreadful. I mean, it was way over the head of Devontae Park, and there were about three jets just standing there, one of them ready to pick it off. It was Ashton Davis in the end who did the other interception going to Brandon Echols. But apart from that, Duke Johnson, do you remember Duke Johnson? He had a right game against the New York Jets, former Cleveland Browns and Houston Texans running back. He played phenomenally, getting 107 yards on the ground and two touchdowns. He was the star of the show easily for the Miami Dolphins, alongside Christian Wilkins. The guard catching a touchdown from Tua. And then, not only did he catch a touchdown, he then jumped into the VIP boxers behind the end zone in Miami. And then not only did he do that, he got out of them and then did the worm. He's like over £300. That was absolutely exceptional. I loved that. The Dolphins obviously getting better as the season goes on. They're now 7-7. Seven and seven. Having won all of their last six games, they've been against easy sides. I don't think any of them games have come against a truly tough side, but uh, the Baltimore one was. I, I apologise. But apart from that, all of their wins have come against very easy sides to be. But still, 7-7 seven and seven in the playoff chase. Technically, I don't think they've got the power to get there. But, you know, way more positive than they were at the start of the season. The New York Jets are 3-11, and 11, they're 4th in the AFC East. The Miami Dolphins are 7-7, seven and seven, they're 3rd in the AFC East. Atlanta Falcons 13, San Francisco 49ers 31. I thought this was going to be a relatively close game. I picked the 49ers, but I did think it was going to be a relatively close game. It ended up not being that. The 49ers completely ran over the Falcons for the most part. Jimmy Garoppolo, by the way, great game. 18 for 23, 235 yards, one touchdown, a pass rating of 123.7. Deebo Samuel once again contributing 89 total yards through the air and on the ground. Jeff Wilson was the star running back for the 49ers in this game, getting 110 yards on the ground. Still, his rushing touchdown was one of Three, one of the other ones going to Debo Samuel, who I've already mentioned. NFL on CBS on Twitter, Debo Samuel has more rushing touchdowns, seven, this season than Dalvin Cook, Nick Chubb, Amon Jones, Antonio Gibson, and Alvin Kamara. Debo Samuel is a wide receiver. That shows just how fantastic Debo Samuel is. He's so entertaining to watch. And so were the San Francisco 49ers in this game. By the way, George Kittle, 93 yards through the air, didn't mention that. They were easily the better side against the Falcons. They deserved that comfortable win. The Atlanta Falcons are 6 and 8. their third in the NFC South. The San Francisco 49ers are 8-6. They're the sixth seed in the NFC. And their third in the NFC West. Carolina Panthers 14. Buffalo Bills 31. The main thing from this game, Zane Gonzalez, the Panthers kicker, was injured in warm-ups and the decision Matt Rule decided to take was to have an open competition for the position of kicker so any player who wanted to could go forward and try and kick and see if they could do it. In the end, they decided to go with the Panthers punter who I forgot the name of, I've believe it was Amir Abdullah who was doing the kicking for the Carolina Panthers and that was about as fun as the game got for them because uh, they weren't very good. Cam Newton had a much better day running the ball 71 yards and a touchdown than when he tried to pass the ball 18 for 38 156 yards one touchdown one interception a pass rating of 56.5. The Bills Co stood relatively to victory. Credit to Devin Singletary, who played really well. 86 yards off 22 carries. Gabriel Davis as well, doing well in the pass game. And to be honest, for me, the most impressive play of the game was for Carolina, actually. The Jeremy Chin interception of Josh Allen. Josh Allen threw the ball relatively well, but Jeremy Chin just leapt up and made a really impressive grab. That was absolutely fantastic. And that was about as good as it got for most of the game for the Carolina Panthers. The Bills have recovered from that small losing streak they had and hopefully will be able to push on for the rest of the season. By the way, Fox were covering this game and the halftime score was 17-8 Buffalo. And they put up a graphic on the bottom of the screen showing that 17-8 was a halftime Scurigami! Halftime Scurigami, eh? Ah. Oh. What a fantastic thing to see. I love how the NFL community has just embraced Skurigami. It's absolutely fantastic. So congratulations to the Panthers and Bills in taking part in that unique bit of NFL history that I'm sure everyone will cherish forever. The Carolina Panthers are five and nine. They're fourth in the NFC South. The Buffalo Bills are eight and six, they're the seventh seed in the AFC, and they're second in the AFC East. Final game there, Minnesota Vikings 17, Chicago Bears 9. According to people on Twitter, this is the most watched Monday night football game in week 15 in a decade. Why? Why were people watching this? It makes no sense whatsoever, but apparently really high ratings for the Monday Night Football comparative to other games in Monday Night Football. I'll tell you why. I've absolutely no idea what we were tuning in for because it's not like anything interesting happened. The Bears, once again, were truly terrible on offense. Justin Fields had a 96.6 pass rating, which was better significantly than Kurt Cousins, who had to get this 87 yards passing total. 12 for 24, 87 yards, two touchdowns, one interception, a pass facing 69.3. Neither side really did anything that's worth talking about. Dalvin Cook, 89 yards on the ground. Well done to Dalvin Cook. Wasn't exactly his best game of the season, but it's something, I guess. And yeah, this game had nothing worth talking about. I guess the way the offense has been ran this year in Chicago will increase calls for the sacking of Matt Nagy. That's completely understandable. There was an interesting line after the game from cornerback Jalen Johnson on Redline Radio. He said, quote, There is a side in the locker room that is starting to go into tank, and you have guys that are still trying to fight and figure it out how we can get better. That's a really interesting comment for me, because when we talk about tanking in the NFL, we always talk about it being the front office were of tanking, whilst the players and management don't want to tank this from Jalen Johnson seems to imply that there are players who genuinely do want to tank and try and get like draft picks on board so I thought that I just thought that was a really interesting comment for I'd share it with you because it was just not what I was expected to hear any player say to be perfectly honest that is genuinely the most interesting thing that came out of the Vikings Bears game why so many people decided to watch it is truly beyond me the Minnesota Vikings are 7-7, seven seven. they're the 7th seed in the NFC. Oh, I like how that all lines up, 7-7, seven, 7th seven, seed. And they're 2nd in the NFC North. The Chicago Bears are 4-10, they're 3rd in the NFC North. Okay, prediction scores then. I won this week with a record of 10-6. Josh and Will both went 9-7. So overall, I still lead with a record of 148-75. and 75. Will is second with a record of 131 and 92. Josh third, 97 and 126. In the lock battle, I was incorrect in locking the Cardinals over the Lions, as was Will. That was his lock too. Josh was right in locking the Bills over the Carolina Panthers. Overall, I still lead the lock race on a record of 13 and 2. Will is second on 11 and 4. Josh third, 10 and Power Rankings, which you can now read on the Sports Blitz website in first place. For the first time in 358 days, I've gone with the Kansas City Chiefs. They have been just a completely different side over the last few weeks. I've been back to their usual selves, back to what they were like from last season and the overtime win, impressive overtime win against the Los Angeles Chargers, helps to prove that. Their offense firing on all cylinders, their defense being able to keep other teams quiet. Kansas currently hold the number one seed in the AFC, the lone number one seed in the AFC. No side have their record, and they're looking really good to keep that number one seed through the last three weeks of the season. In second, the Green Bay Packers. Obviously, it wasn't a full strength Baltimore. They were going up against, but any win against the Baltimore side, always very impressive of how Jim Harbaugh has that side running. The Packers did rely on what I called a poor two-point play to win the game, but they did. They put 31 points away at Baltimore. It is impressive. In third, I'm going to go with the New England Patriots. Obviously, they lost to the Indianapolis Colts on Saturday, But they still put in a reasonable performance and when you're going against Jonathan Taylor, sometimes you've just got to admit defeat before you've even started because when he's on form, you're not going to be able to beat the Indianapolis Colts. That's the lesson the Patriots learned. In fourth, the Los Angeles Rams. Obviously, beating the Seahawks nowadays isn't as impressive as it used to be, but... The Rams still put in a good performance. All of the guys we expected to show up did. Matthew Stafford had a good game. Sony Michelle on the ground. Cooper Cup through the air. The defence also stood up. Jalen Ramsey made a few really impressive plays. And did von Miller. I'm a bit worried that they only put up 20 points to the Seahawks. But for the most part... It's division rival. The NFC West is weird anyway, so anything can really happen. And they got the win, unlike another NFC West side who were playing somebody worse. Fifth, for Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They were locked out by the Saints and were bad. And you can talk about the injuries all you want, but even with the injuries to Fournette, Godwin and Evans, I would have been expecting them to score points. Tom Brady had a bad game and he his attitude after the game was unacceptable. But it is just one loss. They were first last week, so I didn't want to take them down too much. And of course, the Arizona Cardinals in sixth, they the loss to the Saints wasn't as bad as the loss to the Lions. And the Saints just seem to have the Buccaneers number. So we accept this as a weird little quirk in the NFL and then we move on with our lives. So the Tampa Bay Buccaneers go down to fifth place. In 28th, Carolina Panthers There's not much to say about a Panthers side who lost to the Buffalo Bills. I mean, it's just understandable and unsurprising. Cam Newton, once again, just looked bad. And to be honest, the Panthers just desperately now looking forward to 2022 because this season is done with them. 29 for Detroit Lions. Two wins! Two whole wins! Like I said earlier, I've sort of flipped my opinion back on Dan Campbell. I'm now back in Camp Campbell. And the Lions just played really well, showed great spirit against the Cardinals. And yes, this was a Cardinal side who were playing far below their station. But in a season where pretty much nothing has gone right for the Lions, bar that other win they had, obviously, this is just something worth celebrating for them. They're not going to get the first overall pick at the moment. With the way Jacksonville are looking, it's highly unlikely they're going to get the first overall pick at all. But it was a nice win and the fans enjoyed it. The team enjoyed it. Dan Campbell enjoyed it. So there's not really much to complain about. 30th, for Houston Texans. Davis Mills beat out Trevor Lawrence in the Battle of the Rookie Quarterbacks. And he looks like a piece of... The Texans can build around going forward. Brandon Cook's also coming in with a surprisingly good game. The Texans are better than the Jaguars. That doesn't mean much, but it means something. And for a side who were as broken and dysfunctional as they were at the start of the season, it's not really worth complaining about. So congratulations to the Texans who, on the one hand, feel like they're moving in the right direction. On the other hand, they still have Jack Easterby, so they're not. Once they get rid of him, though, then then we could be talking. They're not gonna get rid of him. Thirty first for New York Jets. They lost to the Dolphins, but the Dolphins have been good recently, and the Jets just embraced what they are now and decided to have fun and that was really nice. So wasn't a win, but it was enjoyable at least. Maybe not for Jets fans who would rather see a winning side for once, but, you know, it's something last place, no surprise, for Jacksonville Jaguars. They've sacked Urban Meyer, which is good, but they're still just not really anything. James Robinson came back in, he looked fantastic in his sort of revenge game against Urban Meyer, and the Jags are definitely going to be better off without him, but the situation isn't going to improve soon. Maybe they get the first overall pick as a result. Honestly, that's the best thing Jaguars fans can hope for now. Obviously, there's no quarterback in this draft to take with the first overall pick, so they will just probably take the or whatever. So that's a reason to be optimistic for Jacksonville Jaguars. Honestly, they've got no other reason to be. Okay, it's now time for me to preview all games from week 16 of the NFL season. I'll be predicting as I go along when I come to one team where I think a guaranteed to win. I'll be locking that team up. I can only do this once per week. And so I'm going to do it in a weird way this week. I'm going to start off with the Thursday night football. San Francisco 49ers at Tennessee Titans. Obviously two sides who come into this both in the playoff picture. The Titans leading the AFC South, the 49ers, in one of the wildcard positions in the NFC. And really for me this comes down to whether the Titans can continue to overcome their injuries. Obviously they've had... A lot of injury concerns this season, but they still sit at 9-5. and five. So, they've been coping with them relatively well. Obviously, last week against the Steelers, not so much. Though, luckily this time out, they can't stand on the opposition's logo because this game's at home. So, progress already. But, uh, obviously, the big problem whether the Titans can overcome their injuries against a good 49ers side who will be coming in with injury concerns of their own. Most notably, Elijah Mitchell, the star running back, is out for them. But they've still got fewer injury concerns than the Tennessee Titans and perhaps come into the game with a bit more of a positive morale. Meanwhile, for the Titans, for me, obviously, the main thing actually is preventing turnovers. Last week, they had four turnovers in the game against Pittsburgh. They're 27th when it comes to turnover differential. So, turnovers really have been caught with them. Ryan Tannehill needs to limit his mistakes against what is a reasonable San Francisco defense that has been getting better as the season's gone on because they've had fewer injuries to deal with. So, Tennessee needs to focus on the turnover battle. San Francisco just needs to focus actually on their aerial game without Elijah Mitchell. Debo Samuel is going to be, once again, so important in this game. It's hard to separate the sides, and that's what's going to make it interesting. It should be a close game. The 8 and 6 San Francisco 49ers travel to the 9 and 5 Tennessee Titans. I'm taking a 49ers win. Okay, let's go into the games on Christmas Day then. We're going to start off with the early fixture on Christmas Day, 9 30 in the UK, 4 30 in the US, for the Cleveland Browns' trip to the Green Bay Packers. Obviously, we expect Baker Mayfield to be back for this game. Whether that will be a massive difference for the Browns or not will depend on what you think about Nick Mullins. Denzel Ward is still being limited in practice, which obviously isn't great, but it should be a relatively full-strength Cleveland side. And that's going to help them out as they go to one of the toughest teams in the NFL, we'll go to Lambeau Field to take on the Packers. The Packers have the 10th best team defence in the league but the notable thing is that they are better at stopping the pass than they are at stopping the run so this is going to be another big game for Nick Chubb. He needs to have a much better first half than he did in the game against the Raiders. If he can have a full day's worth of production then the Browns do actually have a good chance of winning in this game. Obviously the Cleveland defence ranks 13th and they've got the task of stopping that talented Green Bay offence, especially the past game, which ranks actually only ninth in the league, which is actually quite surprising. hard uh, odd. Still, I don't think anyone's underestimating how powerful that Green Bay offence is and how much of a challenge it's going to be for the Cleveland Browns. They need to hope Chubb can get into the game. They hope have to hope for their defence can stand up against the Packers. It's going to be a real tough test. The 7-7 Cleveland Browns travel to the 11-3 Green Bay Packers. I'm taking a Packers win. Okay, the final game, Ben, on Christmas Day, or on very early Boxing Day, if you're living in the UK, 8.15pm start in the US, which will be a 1.15am start in the UK, for the Indianapolis Colts trip to the Arizona Cardinals. The Cardinals desperately need a bounce back win. They've lost two on the bounce now. And of course, that last defeat came against the Detroit Lions. For the Colts, they're feeling really optimistic after that win against the Patriots, after seeing what Jonathan Taylor can do against the best defence in the league. Arizona don't have the best defence in the league. They currently rank fifth on the season. But the key factor, again is that they are 17th when it comes to stopping the run. They're really good at stopping the pass, 5th in the league at stopping the pass, but 17th at stopping the run, which should mean that Jonathan Taylor is going to have a complete field day. They'll be good at stopping Carson Wentz, but Carson Wentz completed five passes last week, and the Colts still won, so that's probably not going to be too much of a problem for them. If the Cardinals' defense can step up and stop Taylor, that is the difference between victory and failure. We talked about that stat a couple of weeks ago. When Taylor runs for over 100 yards, the Colts win. When Taylor doesn't, the Colts lose. And that feels like that's going to be how this game plays out, especially with how good Arizona are at stopping the pass. For the Colts, they've gone up against a tough Arizona offense, eighth in the league, but They've got the ninth best defense, which is significantly better than the Lions, who completely shut down the Cardinals last week. The Colts have shown their quality, but the Cardinals are ten and four for a reason. They've been very good this season, and they can easily get back to form. The eight and six Indianapolis Colts traveled to the ten and four Arizona Cardinals, and for the time being, I'm going to take a Colts win. Something about the Cardinals' defence ranking 17th against the run is just not sitting well with me. As somebody who was such a big fan of the Cardinals at the start of the season, up, well, a big fan up until last week, that stat, mm, no, I don't like it. Okay, time to go through the best of the rest then, first of all, starting off with the Buffalo Bills at the New England Patriots. The Buffalo Bills starting... To improve, obviously beating up on the sides who are worse than them. But this is a very tough test against the current leaders of the AFC East of the New England Patriots. If the Bills win them, they'll go onto the same record as the Patriots, but of course the series between them will be tied. So I don't know who would have the tiebreaker at that point. Still, if New England win this, they have practically wrapped up the AFC East. They come into this game still with the best defence in the league. That's going to be going up against the fourth-ranked Buffalo offence. Meanwhile, the Buffalo defence, not bad for themselves, second on the season, only behind the New England Patriots. And they're going to be taking on a Mac Jones, who struggled last time out against the Indianapolis Colts, who will be looking to bounce back. Obviously, it's most likely that the conditions for this game will be completely different to the conditions that they faced in Buffalo that made that game so weird. I would not... Use that as a reference point for how you judge this game, though I will be going with the Patriots. Spoilers. That game was so weird and wild that I don't think, unless it's very similar conditions in Foxborough on Sunday, that that game can really be used as sort of your reasoning for picking one side or the other. The Buffalo Bills have shown a lot of quality this year, but they are going to have a really tough game against that number one. Ranked defence, the 8-6 and six Buffalo Bills travel to the 9-5 New England Patriots. I'm taking a Patriots win, but I do think it will be close. At the same time, the battle for the AFC North is taking place at Paul Brown Stadium. The Baltimore Ravens travelling to the Cincinnati Bengals. At the moment, the Bengals lead the AFC North, but obviously a win for Baltimore will give them control of the division heading into the final two games of the season. Last time out in the first fixture between these two sides, the Bengals came out with a massive win, and if Lamar Jackson isn't available for this game, then they will be feeling confident. Again, he hasn't practiced so far this week, according to the injury report that I'm looking at. That might have changed at point of publication, but Tyler Huntley played really well against the Packers, and I wouldn't expect him to do any worse against the Bengals who have the 11th ranked defense. It's not the best defensive league. It's by no means the worst defense in the league. The bigger interest for me actually comes on the other side of the ball because Cincinnati's offense ranked 9th. Baltimore's defense so good last year ranks 20th. Brother and Co struggled last time out in Denver but this time they're going up against a worse defense at home. So they should find it easier this time around. The Bengals seem to be looking upwards. The Ravens have been a bit more wobbly recently. But they do come into this game with an equal record. And considering this is the AFC North, anything can happen. The 8-6 Baltimore Ravens travel to the 8-6 Cincinnati Bengals. I'm taking a Bengals win. Okay, let's quickly go through every other game in the NFL then. The 4-10 New York Giants travelling to the 7-7 Philadelphia Eagles. Well, at least you'll have a medium, so to help you pass the time, I'm going to take a Eagles win. The 2-2 Jacksonville Jaguars travelling to the 3-11 New York Jets. Great game. Dak Wilson has a chance to recover in this game, show some potential. I'm going to take a Jets win. The 10-4 Los Angeles Rams travelling to the 7-7 Minnesota Vikings. Minnesota can pose a challenge for anyone, but I am going to take a Rams win. The 10 and 4 Tampa Bay Buccaneers travelling to the 5 and 9 Carolina Panthers. What do you think? I'm taking a Buccaneers win. The 8 and 6 Los Angeles Chargers travel to the 3 and 11 Houston Texans. I like Davis Mills, but Justin Herbert is better. I'm going to lock the Los Angeles Chargers. They're the better side. And so long as they have a good day, they will be completely fine. If they have one of their off days, then this game might be close and giving me... Some regret. The 2 and one Detroit Lions travels for six and eight Atlanta Falcons. This game could actually be quite close for the Lions, play up to their potential, but I am going to take a Falcons win. It just feels like the safer bet, to be honest. Going into the late window, the four and ten Chicago Bears traveling to the five and nine Seattle Seahawks. Great game. I'm going to take a Seahawks win. The 7-7 Denver Broncos are travelling to the 7-7 Las Vegas Raiders. You never know what's going to happen with AFC West football, but I am going to take a Raiders win. I obviously don't think that Teddy Bridgewater was the best quarterback, but him not being there is going to be a big loss for that Denver offence. Drew Locke did not look good against the Bengals. The 7-6-1 Pittsburgh Steelers travelled to the 10-4 Kansas City Chiefs. The Steelers have been looking good, especially in the fourth quarter, but I do worry that if they start this game in their trademark slow way, by the time we reach the fourth quarter, the score will be 70-0 Kansas. I am going to take a Chiefs win. Sunday Night Football, the 6-8 and eight Washington football team travel to the 10-4 Dallas Cowboys. The idea that anyone wants to watch this outside of Dallas is ridiculous. I'm going to take a Cowboys win. And the final game then on the Monday Night Football, the 7-7 seven and seven Miami Dolphins travel to the 7-7 seven and seven New Orleans Saints. It's more interesting than we would have thought it'd be a couple of weeks ago, but I am going to take a Saints win. Okay, final thing to go into then before we wrap up the podcast today. The Pro Bowl rosters have been announced. You can find them on the NFL's website. And I just thought I'd go into a few things that really stand out to me. First of all, the biggest controversy of this year's Pro Bowl. Last year, it was Evan Engram being selected for the NFC. That did not happen this year. Which is. It's not surprising. But I would point out that Engram has been playing better this season. Than he did last season. Obviously you will not be surprised to hear. That the two tight ends picked for the NFC. Are George Kittle and Kyle Pitts. Dun, dun, dun. Let's talk about the AFC quarterback picture. Obviously Justin Herbert has been selected. As the starter for the AFC. No surprise there. Patrick Mahomes. Despite his problems earlier on in the season. He's got a pro Bowl nod. That's not that surprising, but Lamar Jackson has been picked as the final quarterback. Where this stuns me, his passer rating's in the 80s, and I know Lamar Jackson's running game is more important, but still, we're meant to be picking the best quarterback, and it's not the 1980s, so a passer rating in the 80s actually isn't impressive. For me, it would be a relatively okay pick if it wasn't for the fact that it means that Joe Burrow and Josh Allen don't make it. Burrow, for me, has probably been the best quarterback in the AFC behind Justin Herbert, even more so than Patrick Mahomes, and Josh Allen has been sensational as well for the most part. So I think there's an interesting debate to be had about which one of them three misses out, but the fact that Burrow and... Allen have missed out and Jackson's got in is just really strange to me. It doesn't make any sense at all. The other one, Creed Humphrey, the centre for the Kansas City Chiefs, missing out over Ryan Kelly of the Indianapolis Colts. I didn't understand that one either, to be honest. I thought Creed Humphrey's had a fantastic season. Some would argue even an all-pro season, which over Corey Lindsley, there's a debate to be had there. But Ryan Kelly's not been as good. Actually, the Colts led all nominations with seven. All team nominations, I should say, with seven. Which, weird. Okay. You'll be surprised to hear Carson Wentz isn't one of the ones selected. But Jonathan Taylor is shocking. Apart from that, nice C. T. J. Watt as a starter at outside linebacker. Cameron Hayne would also get in for Pittsburgh Steelers. Did have to mention that. Obviously, I had to mention that. Meanwhile, for the NFC, the biggest controversy seems to be over Matthew Stafford. The quarterbacks gaining for the NFC, Amon Rodgers, Tom Brady and Kyler Murray. Now, I think Kyler Murray, through the first seven or eight weeks of the season, was an MVP contender. The voting opened before he got his injury. So, it's not a massive surprise to me. I understand why the people who think Stafford should be starting, or sorry, nominator, they don't think he should be starting. Obviously, they don't. But I understand where the people are coming from who say Stafford should have got the nod over Murray, but I would point out to them, and it's for me the reason why Stafford shouldn't have got a pick, when he is pressured, he has a worse pass rating than Trevor Lawrence, which isn't great. For me, Murray was just about the correct pick. I think the level he was playing at for most of the first half of the season was so good that it sort of warranted that Pro Bowl pick, despite his injury and despite the fact that that last game against Detroit wasn't great. Apart from that, it's also great to see that James Conner of the Arizona Cardinals has made the Pro Bowl. He's been absolutely fantastic. Obviously, Kittle and Pitts are the two tight ends. Mentioned that earlier. And, I mean, I don't really know about a lot of defenders in the NFC, but to me, nothing really stood out as being overly controversial, though you might want to disagree with that, and I would understand you completely. Anyway, that is all the time we have on the NFL Blitz today. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next week to talk about all games from week 16 of the NFL season, including, of course, the games on Christmas Day. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas period and a very happy holidays. Until next time, Ben, I've been Alex Woodward, and don't just have a good Christmas like the best player in NFL history. Have an immaculate one. Goodbye.